Open your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter chapter 3. It seemed like he was defeated as if suffering and the powers that put him on the cross had won the day. Then, in what will forever be the greatest reversal of all time, Jesus accomplished total victory over every power. And he did it through suffering, and he did it for us. Local church, Jesus' triumph is ours to celebrate. And what we find in the book of 1 Peter chapter 3 and 4 is that his thinking in the midst of suffering is ours to imitate. So are you facing uh, temptation? If you live in this world, you are. Are you facing opposition or suffering? Again, if you live in this world, the world I live in, you are. So Peter is inviting us to hold on to Jesus' triumph and to take on Jesus' thinking. Let's read about it here in 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. I don't know if you saw this, but some of the verses in our text this morning, are the hardest and most debated verses in the New Testament. I mean, biblical scholars have wrestled over what they mean for centuries, and they're still divided. So that's extremely humbling for me as your pastor. But I strongly believe that the heart of the passage comes through. And even though we're going to walk away with questions this morning, and that's fine, by the way, my prayer is that we wouldn't allow those questions to overshadow what is certain. Don't allow the questions uh, that come to you as you read this passage to overshadow what is certain. Now, what is certain? Two things I believe are certain. Number one, Jesus' triumph is ours to celebrate. And number two, Jesus' thinking is ours to imitate. First, Jesus' triumph is ours to celebrate. Verse 18, 
of 1 Peter chapter 3, in verse 18, Peter makes an appeal to Jesus' suffering yet again. He's saying, as you face suffering for doing good, look to Jesus and consider what he endured and why he endured it. Because his suffering isn't a waste, and neither is yours. You know, what seemed like defeat for Jesus, or to others who were looking on, it achieved far more than anyone could have imagined. Jesus' suffering achieved far more than anyone could have imagined. And so Peter is basically saying, listen, so will yours. It's important for us to see that Jesus took on the greatest problem that humanity has. What is the greatest problem that humanity has? A broken relationship with God. We see this in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So we learn a lot in this verse. It's a gem. We should have a a well-worn path in our Bibles to this passage. It so elevates the gospel, the good news of what Jesus really accomplished for us. What we learn from this verse, this one verse, is that Jesus, his death, it was substitutionary. His death was in our place. Did you see it? The righteous for the unrighteous. And Jesus' goal is that he might bring us to God. The idea behind this phrase, bring us to God, is that Jesus would, intro- or the, the introduction of someone to, to bring someone into a, a, the presence of a superior, someone introducing you to a superior. And so what this is about is about access. This is about reconciliation. This is about a restored relationship with God. And that's what Jesus accomplished for you and I. His work on the cross his life, his death, his resurrection, this was a, a finished work, a once-for-all sacrifice for sin. The righteous one for the unrighteous, in our place, that he might bring us to God. And so this verse, it encapsulates the heart and the mission of God. We learn a lot. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, the perfect offering for our sin. Jesus endured the death that we deserve. He took our place. And Jesus removed the barrier caused by sin, our open rebellion against God, our rejection of God. Jesus removed the barrier caused by that, and he opened the way back to God. It's breathtaking. It's gospel. When we say gospel, we mean good news. It doesn't get better than this. It's truly beautiful. Verses 19 through 22 then unfold before us and we read it and we think, okay, what a gem of a passage in verse 18. Where where are we going in 19 through 22? A lot of questions might fill our minds when we read them. It's, It's complicated. When exactly did Jesus do what is described here? What's happening? Who exactly did Jesus proclaim to Is this an evangelistic message to humans who died during Noah's day? I mean, look what it says. It says that for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, okay, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit, 
in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So is this an evangelistic message that Jesus brought to humans who died during Noah's day? Is this Jesus through Noah preaching to his neighbors to repent? Well, here's what I think it is. Here's what I believe that it is. I believe that, and because of Peter's language and because of other passages of scripture and even because of some Jewish uh, traditions that Peter seems to be leaning on, I believe that this is a declaration of victory before fallen angels or spirits or spiritual beings who had rebelled in Noah's day. You can read in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 or Jude, verse 6 of these fallen angels who had rebelled. They were locked away. I believe what Jesus is doing here is announcing his absolute victory and their total defeat. We just read of what Jesus is suffering, his death, on our behalf, in our place, accomplished for us, that he might bring us to God. That's victory. That's mission accomplished. And he's announcing his absolute victory and their total defeat. Now, there's some crazy background drama to all of this that you can read in Genesis 6. We're not going to get into it. We don't have time. Where spiritual beings or angels in the time of Noah rebelled and did things they should not have done. And so I think in 1 Peter here, chapter 3, I think these spiritual beings represent all authorities, all powers of darkness in rebellion, and Jesus is announcing his victory over them. And it is a definitive announcement of absolute triumph through the cross. So last Sunday, the Buccaneers, they won the Super Bowl, (laughs) right? And at the end of the game, the team is just gleaming. I mean, they're jumping all over the place, like jumping up and down like kids on Christmas morning, right? And then there you have uh, their leader, Tom Brady, receiving the trophy at the end of the game, which signifies their definitive victory. It was an announcement. They are the champions. They won. Confetti's falling. Players are hugging each other. They're doing snow angels in the confetti. They're celebrating. They're carrying on. And rightly so. They won. They got the victory. They're the champions. They're celebrating that fact. They're announcing it. And that's the idea here, I believe. Jesus is proclaiming his triumph over every other power. He's won. He got the dub. He's the champ. Then the mention of Noah leads Peter down a train of thought that connects with baptism. Just as Noah was brought through the waters of judgment, so we too, in baptism, are brought through the waters of judgment, that of sin and death. Peter says, baptism, which corresponds to this, or like the imprint of a seal or stamp, it's symbolic of something. And that makes sense that Peter would say that because baptism is this full-on identification with Jesus. His life, death, and resurrection. It is an outward sign of an inward reality that we have by faith looked to Christ and his perfect life lived in our place. A life of obedience before the Father. A life we could not live. 
And by faith, looking to that uh, work on the cross, his substitutionary death in our place for our sins, paying the price that we deserve, dying a death that we deserve, receiving punishment, the just wrath of God the Father on our sin. For He did that for us. He did it in our place. And so by faith, as we look to him and we put our our trust and our rest in Jesus and we commit our way to him and we believe that he is our rescuer, he is our deliverer, he's our king. What happens? Salvation happens. A new life happens. It's an inward reality. And baptism is an outward demonstration of that inward reality. You see, our lives are hidden in Christ. And like Noah and his family, we're hidden in the ark And we're saved through the ark from the waters of judgment. We too, who find ourselves in Christ, find new life and deliverance through Christ. Beautiful, right? Turn with me to Romans. Romans chapter 6. I love reading this verse, these verses at at a baptism. In Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 3, it says... Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Do you see what's going on here? There's this full-on identification with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus through baptism. When you go to a baptism, you see it. It's, it's just beautifully displayed in the action of baptism. Identifying with Jesus' death in the waters of baptism, going under the water, your life having been hidden with Christ, his death is your death. You've died in Christ Jesus, and now receiving new life, his life is now your life. You're cleansed of your sin, this beautiful symbolism in baptism. So special. I love baptisms. Love going to them. Love celebrating. You know what happens at a baptism? Not only are you walking in obedience to Jesus and his his command, he told us to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So there's um, a response of obedience to Jesus' call to baptism. But it's also a demonstration of your full-on identification with Jesus, like he is your rescue. His death and resurrection is everything to you. And it's also a testimony to those watching. It's beautiful. And it was the norm, and it still should be, I believe, to place faith in Jesus and then be immediately baptized. I don't really recommend waiting a long time. Why? You put your faith and hope and trust in Jesus and then walk in obedience it had been a long time before I was baptized. I, had, I was a Christian for many years. And then finally, my pastor, when I was 18 years old, he's like, man, skinny? He called me skinny. He's like, skinny, you need to be baptized. I'm like, I do? I just didn't realize it was important or didn't think about it in those terms of an act of obedience. He's like, yes. So Valerie and I were baptized on the same day. We were dating. It was sweet. We weren't dating while we were, anyway, we were dating in that season, then we were baptized together. It was special. Listen to me, the saving power behind baptism is not the baptism itself. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want you to see 
what Peter says here. Verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you place your faith in Jesus, his victory is yours. This isn't about the removal of dirt. It's about faith in Jesus. And through Christ, we make our appeal to God the Father. He makes an appeal for us, right? So your baptism, here's what happens. Your baptism, it puts you right there, right beside the conqueror himself, right beside Jesus himself. So my question is, how personal are you taking Jesus' triumph? How personal are you taking Jesus' triumph? You know, we think of Buck, Bucks fans and how personal they take the victory of the Buccaneers. Like, when they won, we're like, we won! We? Were we out on the field? No, but we so identify with our team. That's our team. And now Brady's our quarterback. Even if you were a hater before, now he's your quarterback. We won. There's just this identification with the team so much so we're, we're saying, we did it, we did, they did it. And in the same way, we identify with Jesus' victory, but it's even deeper than that. Because you, through Christ, and by faith in him, listen, it's hard to believe, but I, I want you to hear it. You are the recipient of all the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection. Jesus has triumphed over death and sin. Jesus has triumphed over Satan. He brought that final blow to the deceiver himself. And what this means for us, for those who are in Christ Jesus, is that there is no person, there is no action, there is no decision against you that can cancel out the victory that Christ has won for you. Listen to that again. There's no person, there's no action or decision against you that will cancel out this triumph, this victory for you. So that is Really good news for a persecuted church like the one that Peter's writing to, scattered about, wondering what in the world is going on. But to hear this message of Jesus' triumph and to understand that you're standing right beside the victor, you're right beside the champ. I mean, just think about what that would do to a church that's feeling the weight of temptation and opposition and suffering. So that's good. That, that was good for Peter's original audience. But it's good for us. We're receiving God's word. They had their time. Now it's ours. So how is, how is this impacting you? What is this doing to you? When you consider what this means for you, how does it move you? How does it shape you? That there is no person, action, or decision against you that will cancel out the victory that Jesus has won for you. And then in verse 22, we see this. Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Well, this is where we see the tables turned. This great reversal just begin to unfold. Peter grabs this phrase, at the right hand of God. He's taking this from the most quoted or referenced psalm in the New Testament, Psalm 110, verse 1. It says this, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Right hand. Right hand is a place of honor and power as Yahweh's chosen representative. You cannot come up with a greater position of power and authority than this. 
Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool is a metaphor for total victory. Angels, authorities, powers, they're all subjected to Christ now. Oh, how the tables have turned. The one that you, you put on a cross naked and crucified, the one that you thought you had the upper hand over, the one that you thought you had the victory over, the power over, you see this great rever- reversal, this, the, how the tables have turned. And what we find is that through his death and resurrection, it's that Jesus has subjected angels, authorities, and powers, human powers included, and all the spiritual powers that are somehow behind them, however that works, all of them subjected to Jesus. And Peter's just celebrating it. And he's not the only New Testament author who, who celebrates this. It's appropriate to celebrate this kind of victory and triumph. And when you celebrate something, what do you do? You, do? you declare recognize its significance. It has meaning and value, but you also participate in it in a very special way. You're owning it. The idea here at church is that we need to move forward in life holding on to triumph. Holding on to Jesus' triumph because Jesus' triumph is ours to celebrate. Second, Jesus' thinking is ours to imitate. Again, he says in in chapter 4, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So we have the announcement of Jesus, um, his I've won announcement ringing in our heads, in our hearts, and now Peter instructs us to say, I'm done. Jesus has won, I'm done. I'm done with what? Well, the suffering of Jesus becomes this model for us in our resistance against the desires of the flesh. Arm yourselves, Peter says. Arm yourselves. Be equipped with the proper weaponry that you need. Arm yourselves with what? The same way of thinking, the same attitude. Start thinking like Jesus did when he was suffering. So this new way of life, this life of following Jesus, it requires a new way of thinking, A new mindset, yes, for sure, but also a place of inspiration. I I believe we can draw the inspiration to live our life for Jesus as we see how Jesus faced suffering and what it produced. How did he endure? How did he endure the cross, scorning its shame? For the joy that was set before him, he did that. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, it tells us, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you will not grow weary, so that you will not grow faint-hearted. Listen, I don't know about you, but when I wrestle with the passions of the flesh, I can grow very weary and faint-hearted when I continue to wrestle with the same thing. It keeps raising its ugly head, and I'm like, man, again? And I get so weary and faint-hearted and like, oh, am I ever going to have victory over this thing? keeps haunting me. It's very discouraging. This is why we need to think like Jesus did, continue to look to him. So how do we arm ourselves? What does that even look like to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking? All suffering forces us to evaluate or reevaluate our lives, doesn't it? I mean, think of the events in your life 
that produce suffering. A car accident, maybe, a sickness, opposition. And and it brought everything else into perspective in your life, and you knew it. You knew that your life from that point on was going to be different. How much more, when we decide to identify with Jesus, when we decide to take up our cross, which involves suffering, when we decide to take up our cross daily and follow Jesus, how much more should that shape us and change everything about us from that point forward? And so we begin to see when we, when we take up our cross and follow Christ, when we have put our trust and our hope and our rest in Jesus, when we recognize him as king, what, what, what happens is we begin to see what sin produces and how God's will isn't actually at all restrictive. It's the way of freedom and joy. It's It's worth devoting our entire lives to. The way of the cross. The way of of dying daily. Of saying no to the passions of the flesh. and Yes to an upright, self-controlled life in Christ Jesus. And what we find, what we discover, because it's crazy, right? When you, when you say no to certain passions that, that raise their ugly head again in your life, and you're like, oh, my goodness, I know you're lying to me. It is so tempting right now to delight in this, but I know it's a lie. I know where it leads. I've been down that road before. And so you got to call it out for what it is. No. And then you say yes to what Christ has called you to. And see, this isn't at all restrictive. Actually, it's, it's, it's my freedom and peace and joy. And when I live according to your will, I'm actually, I'm actually discovering really how you've called me to live from the start. And it's beautiful. But there's going to be a wrestling match that goes on. And so what you're doing is you're beginning to see what sin produces. When you say no to these things, you call it out. And you see the way of freedom. And so there's this new resolve when you live this way. You're saying, enough already. I'm done with it. Being done with it isn't about about, uh, sinless perfection. It is about resistance. Let me say that again. Being done with the passions of the flesh, the things that once ruled you and governed you and defined you, and saying no to those things isn't about sinless perfection. No one can live a perfect life except Christ But it is about a life of resistance, learning how to take up the proper weaponry, thinking like Jesus in the midst of suffering and temptation, and and, and fighting with that, and saying, enough, I'm done. And Peter's saying in verse 3 of chapter 4, you've wasted enough time on these things. I mean, come on, he says, right? With respect to this, they are surprised. Actually, verse 3, for the time that is uh, past suffices for doing what the Gentiles or those who don't know Christ want to do. And he has this long list uh, of things. I mean, Peter, he knows what's up in his culture. You've wasted enough time doing these things. And then in verse 4, he says, listen, they're surprised. They think it's strange and totally unnatural for you not to go along with them. I mean, questions like, man, what's wrong with you? You're not going to sleep with her before you you get married? That's crazy. Oh, you don't want to hear what we did last night? You don't want to be involved in that conversation? Oh, you don't want to go out with us and join us in what we're doing? What's wrong with you? You know, for Peter's original audience, not participating in community-wide pagan festivals and dinner parties was an issue. They would have been thought of as very, very strange. 
But these pagan festivals and parties involved a lot of these hedonistic uh, activities listed out in verse 3. And so first, they think you're just crazy. They think you're strange. But then they begin to malign you, Peter says. They'll say hurtful things about you and against you. But this makes sense because you've, you've changed your allegiance. You've changed your loyalties. When you change your behavior, it's because you've changed your loyalties. This is not about just being a moral person. This is about allegiance to King Jesus and following the way of Jesus, whatever that costs. Whatever that costs. And there is a cost. And and so they see that you've changed your loyalties and you become a target for ridicule and mockery. Why? Why do you become a target? Maybe you've experienced this. If you're trying to follow Jesus in a new way, Maybe you have become a target of those who don't understand your newfound faith in Christ. Or maybe they think that you're just being self-righteous. You're being judgmental simply because you're trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus in his way. And so you're misunderstood. You're ridiculed. You're mocked. Maybe you're seen as a killjoy or somebody's like, really? What's wrong with you? Like there's something wrong with you. This is something that should be expected Because many will not understand. Some might feel conviction from how we're living. Like when you get close to a fire, you feel its heat or a light. How It it sheds light on, on the darkness all around, exposes some things. And so maybe some of the people you've been hanging with feel a bit threatened by your newfound faith. Maybe as they see Jesus in you, they feel threatened by what they see and what it might mean for their life. But verse 5, Peter says, basically, don't worry about their judgment of you. You don't have to answer to them. They will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And when Peter mentions the living and the dead, this day of judgment, which Peter mentions a lot in this letter, it leads him to a place of talking about those who had heard the gospel when they were alive and they believed it, but they are now dead. And there may have been questions uh, surrounding where these individuals actually ended up actually after they died. People within the church possibly asking a question about what happens to those who, who die. Or maybe there were people on the outside of the church giving them a hard time about followers of Jesus dying. So much for your faith. I, I don't know. But what I do know is that Peter is placing a priority on speaking the good news about Jesus to those who are alive. To those who are still alive. You see what he says here in verse 6 of chapter 4. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. You know, he, he's basically saying this. Those who have died, who have received the good news of Jesus before they died, They experienced physical death, but they are alive. They are alive in the spirit. They're alive in the spirit. And and they might have experienced what we will all face one day, death. But even death itself, with its seemingly definitive victory, does not have the final say. Because they are alive. Have you taken Jesus' triumph personally? Are you celebrating Jesus' triumph frequently? 
Are you ready to think like Jesus? I'm talking about in the midst of suffering and temptation, ready to take on the mindset of Christ. Jesus' triumph is ours to celebrate. Church, Jesus' thinking is ours to imitate. And so we can face temptation. We can face opposition. We can face suffering holding on to triumph. And that changes everything about us. Hold on to triumph. Hold on to Jesus' triumph. Don't let go. Watch what it does. Watch what it produces. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the triumph of your son Jesus and what his suffering produced for us and what it means forever. We thank you for teaching us now how to live, how to think, in the midst of temptation, how to say no to those passions that once defined us, to take on the mindset of Christ in the midst of that fight, in the midst of that resistance. Would you continue by your spirit to teach us how to hold on to triumph and how to think like Jesus did? That we might bring you honor and praise through our lives. In Christ's name, amen.